Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In August in San Francisco, I spoke and moderated a panel at Singularity University's Global Summit, where a whole section of one day was devoted to blockchain issues. After a brief talk by me and then longer presentations by Bill Barhain of Abra and Mickey Costa of the Atlas Holdings Group, we three, along with Galia Benarzi of Bancor, had a panel discussion on the current state of crypto and how to get user adoption. Finally, the blockchain programming finished up with a talk on blockchain for good by Kara Lapointe, a previous guest on my podcast, Unconfirmed, and Ann Connolly, blockchain faculty at Singularity University. All the talks and panels were so great, and I was really honored to speak at Singularity. Enjoy the show. Start Engine is a regulated ICO platform with a community of 155,000 plus registered users that's focused on issuing tokenized securities. Go to startengine.com slash unchained for a 20% discount on setup services to launch your regulated ICO. This is not legal advice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our block on crypto and blockchain. Thanks for coming. I'm going to talk a little bit about the power of decentralization, and then we've got some other speakers and panelists. You've probably heard this idea that Bitcoin and other crypto assets are creating money out of thin air. All you need is some code, some computers to run your blockchain, and voila, money. The idea that you can create verifiably scarce digital assets is certainly novel and represents a breakthrough in our history. But I actually think that another, potentially more powerful development is getting little attention. And that is the ability to remake the big businesses that we know today as networks that are decentralized, peer-to-peer, and user-owned. Yes, Facebook, Google, and Amazon are tech giants, and we we rely on their products and services day in and day out. So it probably seems hard to imagine a time when they might be replaced by user-driven versions. It seems obvious that a business entity with employees who are motivated by stock options could outcompete any challengers that are being built by users around the globe who are just everyday people interested in this project and aren't necessarily motivated by quarterly performance reviews or by a weekly paycheck. But to remember the power of decentralized networks, just look at what happened between Wikipedia and Giancarta Encyclopedia. The first, obviously, was a crowdsourced version, and the latter, Encarta, was run by Microsoft. But now when you search for Encarta on the internet, the first search engine result is not Encarta because it no longer exists. It's the Wikipedia entry for Encarta. Yesterday, my friend Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation spoke about the power of decentralization 
as it pertains to Bitcoin. I'd like to also highlight the possibility that user-owned decentralized networks can remake vast portions of our economy. And while it may seem far-fetched, who will be the owners who reap the rewards of those networks that could potentially displace today's tech giants? Quite possibly, we the users. Whether or not crypto fulfills this vision is an open question. After all, at the beginning of the internet, there was a lot of rhetoric about how the internet would bring peer-to-peer -peer communication. And here we are 20 years later, communicating mostly over Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Skype, WhatsApp, name, you know, any of these big centralized services. So will the crypto community's idealistic notions of decentralization come to fruition? Will we see a user-owned eBay, a user-owned Uber, a user-owned Twitter? To listen to crypto people talk, it seems like a foregone conclusion. But like I said, at the beginning of the internet, everybody thought the same thing would happen with communication, that it would be peer-to-peer. -peer. So will it happen? I can't tell you. The answer lies in the hands of people like you. Please welcome founder and CEO of Abra, Bill Barheit. All right. Good afternoon. Uh, by the way, Laura's too humble to promote her podcast. Uh, so if you don't listen to Unchained, uh, download it. It's the one podcast in crypto land that I listen to religiously, even though she hasn't had me on yet. So I'm going to give you my take on where this is all going. What a crazy year uh, this has been. Um, if you had told me three months before we launched Abra into beta that the price of Bitcoin would get to almost 20,000 and then fall down to you know, 5,000 or wherever it was, and you know, there'd be a fork, uh, you know, five forks of Bitcoin, I, it, just, it just wouldn't make sense. Uh, but yet here we are. So I'm going to give you my take uh, in the next few minutes on where it's all going, and then I'm happy to make it a little interactive. And I know um, we're going to have a, a longer discussion uh, after the next uh, presentation as well. Okay, so uh, using my exponential technology-based time machine, I was able to fly four years into the future before, uh, before this talk, and I was able to see a couple of really interesting press releases that I want to uh, give you some insights on because maybe you'll want to invest in these companies now. So this is a kid I met named Samuel in uh, Tanzania. Samuel's got a, a, a light in his uh, home for the first time. Uh, because his family has purchased a new solar system that uh, basically uses their Kenyan, Tanzanian-based M-Pesa wallets to make monthly lease payments on a new solar panel. It's really cool. They've now sold, uh, four years later, uh, over a million of these installations. Uh, the repayment rate is like 100% because people want the lights. Nobody steals them because they guard them really well. Um, it's, the, the company is doing phenomenally well. The challenge up until now, 2022, has been how do we do this outside of these markets? Because in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, everybody has that M-Pesa wallet so they can make that $5 weekly payment on these solar panels. What we really want to do is we want to deploy them globally. But how does somebody in Indonesia pay? How does somebody in India pay or ch rural China? So they finally figured out that using cryptocurrency technology, they could bring this service global or make the service global so that it, they could deploy it in over 100 countries. So effectively, what they launched is, is the world's first pay-as-you-go solar service, live in over 100 countries. Really cool. This is Angelica. She's a farmer in, uh, in rural uh, Philippines that I met 
uh, also in my time machine. And she actually takes money that she makes uh, and puts it in um, these micro-investing services. She actually buys exposure to U.S. stock indices all the way from the Philippines in tiny pennies at a time. And over time, uh, it's, it's, it's ballooned to a very significant value. The challenge for them has been the same, this company that provides this service. Right? We have to go uh, on the ground and partner with lots of banks to make this service work in just a couple of countries. But now we've figured out that using cryptocurrency technology, we can actually make this service work live, globally, in, in, in actually more than 100 countries. And, and they've done that now. It's really fascinating. So how is it possible... Like, I have tried to deploy mobile banking services in, like, 15 countries and gave up because I, was, I had a headache perpetually for years, right? But here we are, right, four years later, and they've been able to figure out how to deploy these services, right? How is this possible, right? So I figured out what they're, what they're doing, and the service has to obviously, by definition, be globally accessible. But the payment mechanism, we'll come back to that in a second, obviously it has to be Internet-based, but the payment mechanism not only has to be stable, preferably in a currency that the consumer understands. The average consumer doesn't know what Monero is. But, but if, they're, if, you're in, if you're in Indonesia, they, they know rupees. So how do you reconcile the fact that I want to put money in the system in rupees, but in order to make that solar panel work in 100 countries, right, I probably can't use local banks in 100 countries to make the payments. The money flows just don't work. So let's take a step back and talk about how not to do this, okay? So you probably can glance at this for about five seconds and find a common thread. These are all currencies that have effectively failed. Actually, I'll take a step back. Every country, every currency in history at some point has failed. Either that or it's going to fail at some point, right? These are the ones that have failed spectacularly, with the most recent one, of course, being the Bolivar, which more or less capitulated this week, right? So over time, I have counted, well, let's just go back 100 years, right? There's about 30 currencies that have failed due to hyperinflation and currency inflation over the last 100 or so years. I want to show you, because this is going to paint a story as to where I think we're going, what happens when you start printing money as if it didn't matter, right? So most people focus on inflation, as, uh, meaning the cost of goods and services. Think a little bit differently about it. Look at the green line. That's simply the amount of money in circulation. Now, my mother has a uh, 1950-something Mickey Mantle baseball card, and I think it's worth a lot of money. I'm not sure how much it's worth. But what it's worth is dependent upon how many there are. So let's say she had the only one in existence, and it was worth $10,000. Now, if she found out tomorrow there were two in circulation, it would stand to reason that that card might actually now be worth about $5,000. Right? But for some strange reason, after hundreds of years, governments refuse to get that basic concept. Over and over and over, they make the same mistake. So here's the US, right? Look at what's happened to our money supply in the last three years. Let me just bring up this picture again, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you what's going to happen. I'm just asking you to accept the fact that history leaves clues, right? And here's clue number one. All right, enough of that. What's happened? to our money in the last, I don't know, 100 years, right? Basically, the purchasing power of the dollar has fallen 90% in the last 100 years. The only reason that most of us aren't up in arms around it, about it is either one, we weren't here 100 years ago, or two, if we were here 100 years ago, we're not dead, 
That's the only reason. If we were living to be 150, there'd be riots in the streets because your money would be worthless and you would know it. Right? So the pattern here is very clear. Money was based upon a commodity uh, standard up until the, the World War II. And what happened after World War II is, very clear, is also equally clear. So now let's relate this back to my earlier research, which said we need a stable, some kind of stable store of value to make these global payment systems work. Is it really finally time for a new commodity standard? Now, obviously, this talks about Bitcoin, so you can guess where I'm going. But I tried to find a parallel to say, you know, is, is there some kind of history lesson to be learned from what happened with the Internet itself? And I actually did some research it was amazing what I found. Okay, here's a quote. It's actually a friend of mine. I'm not picking on Karen. Uh, she knows payments. I would claim she doesn't really know Bitcoin, but there's a lot of people who don't know Bitcoin and make comments on Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin has only two proven use cases after eight years, criminal activity and speculation. And there's so much naysaying hyperbole out there. I just picked one at fairly randomly. But I went back and searched archives on the Internet itself or, or news about the Internet itself and found this. I predict the Internet will soon go spectacularly supernova and in 1996, catastrophically collapsed. And this is the person who actually created Ethernet. Okay, basically said the, 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 the Ethernet can't basically uh, survive under its own weight. Obviously, the, the one on the right is easy to prove because it's already transpired that he was wrong. Uh, and I believe that the quote on the left is mathematically provably wrong, which I'm going to show you uh, uh, now. Right? Meaning I can actually show you provable use cases as to where it is the only technology that can solve the problem today that don't involve criminal activity and speculation. Now, let's extend that internet analogy. These are the businesses that have either died, been transformed uh, in some way because of the internet. Right? Again, easy to prove, it's already happened. These are the businesses that I believe, in the same vein, will be uh, either replaced, transformed, killed, or, or dramatically changed in some way because of Bitcoin and its underlying uh, uh, blockchain technology. And when I say blockchain technology, I'm still talking about Bitcoin. All right, let's get this out of the way. Here's the market cap. This is an asset class that did not exist 10 years ago, right? The fact, forget about the, the, the volatility swings. The most important feature of Bitcoin as it relates to volatility is that one Bitcoin today is one Bitcoin tomorrow, <laughs> okay? It's not the price today because if everything else I'm saying is true, it's the fungibility of Bitcoin that matters, not its price in dollars. But the fact that it didn't exist 10 years ago and we're all sitting, the fact that you're sitting here listening to, talk, to me talk about this, I've been at this for 30 years. I've been in crypto at the CIA, finance at Goldman Sachs. I worked on the first credit card gateway on the internet. I can tell you, I've never believed more fundamentally in my life that something is, is here to stay that hasn't proven itself yet than this. Right? This is about to change everything. The same way I believed in 95 that the internet was about to change everything. But what is really the killer app for this? Well, I'm going to give you three. Right? We're going to talk about cross-border payments, investing, and asset finance, and then relate it back to what I found when I traveled into the future. So let's talk about cross-border payments. Most of you have heard of the, the remittance market. Uh, about $500 billion gets remitted on, on the grid, meaning via the traditional banking system, whether it's Western Union or just bank wires. Uh, equal amount of money gets remitted underground. Uh, people carrying money back home, uh, people using old, old ancient Hawala type of solutions where they call a friend to give out money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a trillion dollars, which generates probably 50 to $60 billion in FX and, and transaction fees for banks, 
Western Union, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? According to our calculations at Abra, if you were to replace not even the user-facing aspect of it, meaning the pay-in and pay-out would still be in dollars and pesos, but just the rails right, with Bitcoin, at least 100 basis points would go back into the system, meaning to the consumer. Right? And that's at least you know, half of those fees, according to my calculation today. That's an incredible amount of money that basically is completely wasted. Now, the biggest challenge with that is I don't think Western Union, would, for example, would understand a word of what I just said. But, but eventually they will, right? And at that point, right, here's, everything, everything is going to change from a money transfer perspective because it will be instant, it will be uh, practically free. Here's an example of a service we've been testing in the Philippines that uses what we call uh, uh, cash tellers on the ground that effectively are buying and selling legally Bitcoin. Now, the most half of the consumers know they're buying Bitcoin because they're using the tellers to invest in crypto. The other half are using the tellers to actually get money on and off a phone in a foreign exchange transaction. They only know that they're holding digital pesos. They don't actually know that the transaction is happening in Bitcoin. The teller makes a small fee, which is a fraction of the Western Union uh, SWIFT fees, and everybody's happy. And on the U.S. side, they can put the money in uh, via ACH, just like you do with Venmo. And so effectively, you have a simulated cross-border wire that actually doesn't even leave the Bitcoin network. Right? Decentralized investing, what does that mean? Well, let's go back to that original example of micro-investing. What if I wanted a way to invest in anything in India? I wanted to invest in Apple stocks, uh, U.S. ETFs, gold, but I wanted to do it in $1 chunks. It would be very difficult today, very, very difficult. But what if I could give you a way using Bitcoin-based smart contracts to hold the value in a very secure, mathematically guaranteed way on a smartphone? That would solve a few problems. One, no central company would be holding the money because if you're using Bitcoin correctly, you're actually holding the keys. Well, how can I capture the value of Apple stock in, in, in a Bitcoin private key that's on my phone, right? Well, what I'm telling you is, is not only is that possible, if you use Abra, you've been using just that to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in transaction volume that we've conducted exactly that way. So if you hold anything but Bitcoin in the Abra app, Bitcoin is just stored in a Bitcoin private key, anything, dollars, euros, pesos, Ripple, Monero, Dash, any other currency, what you're actually holding is, is a multi-sig Bitcoin smart contract that pegs the value of Bitcoin to that asset, right? How many of you understood that? Good. I didn't want you to understand that. So, no, what I'm really saying is, is that I just basically did the digital equivalent of handing you a bunch of gold so that you're holding the gold and then gave you a derivative contract that tied the gold to anything, whatever asset you chose, right? All on the Bitcoin blockchain. So this is effectively what's going on to accomplish that, it doesn't matter what the asset is. I could do this with baseball cards so long as there is a liquid market for baseball cards. Why does this matter? Well, this now makes it legal in 150 countries to invest in something because there's no third party managing custody. There's no third party broker. We're simply acting as the counterparty to the contract, right? And no assets have to change hands because it's all happening on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's a huge breakthrough. Okay. Now, I showed you how money transfer can be made global, cheap, near free, via Bitcoin. 
how investing, and by the way, you can do this even with mashup of assets. So if you take uh, Apple stock and Google stock and you mash them up, you can actually create a new coin, right, doing this. Abra's actually built this stuff. Sounds a lot like an ETF, right? Okay, well, stay tuned. So now I've showed you how you can enable global investing in a way that's not possible without this technology and how you can do money transfer in a way that's not possible without this technology. Well, let's bring, and, and, and this screen is the basis for both of those solutions. Let's bring those together in another real-world example that completely hides all of this to the consumer but solves a big problem. Let's go back to that solar panel example. Remember I mentioned 1 million-plus homes, East Africa, et cetera, et cetera, all, again, using the local banking system, VMPESA, works great. I've tried it. It's really a breakthrough uh, for those countries, um, and the penetration is astounding. Right? But what about the company and COPA that wants to do this everywhere, that can't because there's no single easy way to pay? Credit card networks are out of the question because in rural areas, the fees are going to be 10%, plus FX when they have to settle. Right? And half these consumers won't have bank accounts to begin with. They're probably going to want to pay with cash. Well, using that teller model I described, where I can easily get crypto on a smartphone, right? Abra can not only solve that problem for solar panels, I can solve it for any consumer electronic device, washing machine, refrigerator, anything that you can basically put a SIM chip in to create internet connectivity, I can now remotely control to say, if you've made that lease payment using a simple crypto wallet, you can then use the device. So we've actually started building this out uh, we call it instant on leasing. In, in, in Europe, they, they refer to it sometimes as Pago for uh, local services like MCOPA. And our intent is to build a stack that we open up to the world where anyone can basically turn uh, a device into a hardware as a service business that will work globally. Foxconn made an investment in Abra last year explicitly for this reason. Okay. So now I've just shown you three applications of Bitcoin that actually work with Bitcoin today. Bitcoin does not need to be upgraded, changed in any way whatsoever for all three of these to work. Now, next generation tech like Lightning that help it scale are going to be great. They're going to help this work even better, but this works even without that. Okay? So let's go back to our two press releases. Right? Global availability of micro-investing, uh, pay-as-you-go solar service in 100 countries. It's now clear to me that Bitcoin solves these problems, even if the consumer doesn't know they're using it, which is probably the key, which I also think is, is highly likely to be the case, just like your mother doesn't know what TCP IP is when she watches Netflix, but she still watches Netflix. All right. That's how fundamental Bitcoin is to the future of commerce. But because it addresses all three of these issues, globally accessible, stable store of value, and it's internet-based. Okay? So I'm happy to... Um, answer a couple of questions. Um, I think we have a couple of minutes, so um, I don't know if there's a mic floating around, but if, if there's one in the back, if we don't get to you fast enough, we just shout it out, I'll repeat, but anybody want to ask a question? Shout it out, go ahead. Hi, so what about regulators around the world? They're trying to figure out a way to, I don't know, to stop or to regulate money transfers, remittances across the world, because they're actually de facto disrupt the business of current uh, banks. Yeah. So they haven't figured out a way, and these, the, these rails bypass a KYC or AML process sure. around. Sure. You, you can't bypass um, AML, any money laundering, or know your customer regulation when you touch the banking system. You simply can't. Um, but what you can do is you can store software on a phone. The government can't stop you from storing ones and zeros on a smartphone. 
um, which, for example, is what happens when you use Abra. There's actually a private key on your phone. There's no central custodian. So they recognize that they, even the Chinese government doesn't stop people from storing private keys on a smartphone to own cryptocurrency. Right? They don't allow public exchanges to access the banking system, but they don't stop people from owning crypto. Most people are simply buying it on the street in exchange for cash using local Bitcoin and other services. So the people that are causing that green line up and to the right definitely are not excited, uh, a lot of them, about this. But the good news is they can't stop it at large scale. They can make blips along the way, but long term, I have fought every crypto battle under the sun. I fought export, ru export rules at Netscape in the mid-90s on weapons-grade cryptography. We lost, and the governments will lose this battle as well and have no choice but to embrace it, and hyperinflation will finally be a thing of the past, in my opinion. It may take 25 years, but that's okay. Hi, my name is David. Why do you say that it is a stable store of value despite the volatility that we notice in the graph? For two reasons. Um, why is it a stable store of value? For two reasons. One, because it's fungible, meaning the most important quality of Bitcoin is, is that one Bitcoin is always equal to one Bitcoin, just like one dollar is always equal to one dollar. That's just common sense. The second is, via those smart contracts, I can actually, in a stable manner, store an equivalent value of any asset in a Bitcoin smart contract. That's how our app works today. Whether it's dollars or Apple stock or other cryptocurrencies, makes no difference. Right? Most people don't realize that Bitcoin at its core, it's programmable money. Right? It's not just digital gold. Abra is simply using, using the crypto Bitcoin as programmable money the way it was intended to be used. I believe we're the first company to figure out how to do that, but, but that's what it is at its core. Two questions. Um, first is, Bitcoin is not very fast. Yesterday, somebody mentioned uh, a network like Lightning, yep. which should enhance this. Yep. Second question is, is there any other currency like Bitcoin? Yeah, so I, I commented on Lightning a, a couple of minutes ago, but just to reiterate what that is. So Bitcoin today, um, it's, it's not necessarily slow compared to fiat. What it is is limited in throughput, um, which has the net effect of you can only process so many transactions in a given time frame. There's a second, what we call a second layer technology uh, called Lightning, a Lightning network that basically has figured out how to, on top of the Bitcoin network, process an, a near endless number of transactions and then settle those transactions onto the Bitcoin network, but do it in a way that preserves the privacy and the best benefits of Bitcoin um, along the way. Uh, the Lightning Network is now being deployed. There's thousands of these Lightning nodes live all over the world. What's interesting about it, it actually could represent a, uh, an opportunity for banks uh, to provide services in crypto. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. What was your second question again? Oh, similar currencies to Bitcoin. Yeah, so um, there are many cryptocurrencies. Uh, some are actually forks of Bitcoin. Litecoin uh, is a fork of Bitcoin um, who, you know, their properties are, they, pro they allow more transaction throughput. Um, there's other brand new, you know, Ethereum, uh, you know, EOS is a new currency. There's, there's literally hundreds of cryptocurrencies out there. Um, all have different kind of technology benefits and advances and things that they're trying to do to compete with Bitcoin. We love the technology of having lots of different cryptos because it propels the whole space forward. Right? And you, you can go to either abra.com or other places and read about the differences. Some are trying to solve different problems, privacy, uh, transaction volume throughput, um, you know, IoT, connectivity, whatever. There's a million reasons to create a new currency these days. Right? Yeah, good question. So, so two, the two points made to address were 
uh, how do we reconcile the, the large holders of Bitcoin who may not be using the Bitcoin or just holding it as whales? And how do we address this issue of Chinese-based mining uh, centralization? So, so both are related, actually. So any, I don't know if any of you here, and if you're attending Singularity, I'm sure this would be interesting to you. Um, read some of the basic, uh, go to you know, Rothbardian's websites or whatever, and just read some very basic tenets of Austrian economics. And they wrote about what happens when you have a deflationary asset long before the idea of Bitcoin existed. Right? But what's astounding is, is Bitcoin is playing out the Austrian playbook to the letter. They actually predicted exactly what's happening, meaning massive hoarding, right? Meaning the, 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 it, it, the short-term volatility driven by the volume of buyers since the whales aren't selling, which is exactly what we're seeing right now, right? But eventually, the, the prediction goes, the asset becomes so valuable, right, that people have no choice but to loosen up the purse strings to, target, to take advantage of their newfound wealth. And I think we're three or four years away, at least, from that happening, but in the meantime, applications like what I showed you are viable using the tech, even if, even if the whales aren't selling in mass, because someone's, someone's trading and selling. That's all we need. The second issue has to do with mining um, centralization. This is a more complex issue, but, but basically a couple of companies have figured out how to game the system by having ASIC chips um, that are highly optimized for the proof-of-work algorithms that basically are the game you play in order to win Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Uh, I think a few things are going to happen over the next few years. Um, one, the crypto algorithms, like the elliptic curve algorithms, they're going to have to change. Right? We're going to have to get away from SHA-256 because, one, it's going to become breakable, whether it's via you know, high-in-the-sky stuff or just smart NSA employees. I don't know. Eventually, it's going to become easily breakable, which all encryption eventually does, and you move on to the next thing. So that will hopefully address some of that. The second part is, is that as the amount of computing power is growing exponentially, yes, the chips are becoming um, centralized, but the actual ownership of the hash power is not, right? So if you actually look at the mining pools and break it down into actually who owns the hash power, it is not nearly centralized in any meaningful way. I don't like the fact that there's, I don't care where they're from, whether it's China or Israel, US makes no difference to me, but I don't like the fact that it's one company that's got a monopoly on that. I don't trust one company to do anything. Even Abra, by the way. I would like lots of Abras out there eventually. I just want to be the biggest one. <laughs> right? but, but I do think that this problem will be a non-problem over time for the reasons that I mentioned. And, and I think the crypto algorithm one is, the bigger, is, is actually a much bigger concern than the mining chips because Bitcoin doesn't have centralized governance by definition. And that's been a challenge for Bitcoin in terms of actually moving the tech forward. So when it comes time to change SHA-256, where we really have no choice, I hope it happens quickly enough to, to not become a problem. I think we have time for one, one more question, then we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the next. All right, so you stop it because you asked three questions in one, even though they're telling me to get off the stage. So, okay, so um, there's 150 live cryptocurrency exchanges now in different countries. Uh, and so all of them access the banking system in some way. It's, it's not often easy, the amount of paperwork they put you through. Some of them, it's ridiculous, make you make a video of yourself speaking. It's crazy. Just, but, but also, to their defense, the amount of fraud in, in the Bitcoin world, unfortunately, as it relates to the banking system, not Bitcoin itself, is very high. Okay? But I am aware of at least 150 countries now where you can buy Bitcoin via the banking system, and more are coming online all the time. I think the key to that question is simply time. Right? Second question was about an ETF. There are 12 applications pending, to my knowledge, uh, for Bitcoin-based uh, ETFs. None have been approved yet. 
uh, I believe my opinion and the opinion of a bunch of insiders is one will be approved in the next six to 12 months. And I think the, the, the reason that one will be approved is this, pretty much the same reason why one hasn't been approved, is that it's people like my friends that are applying in the first batch, and that's not who they want to approve. They want to approve the old you know, gray hair suit guys who are already running ETF so that they have comfort that they know these people. Right or wrong, I think that's what they're waiting for, and I think that's going to happen because that's, th those are some of the applications that are pending. So you will see a U.S.-based ETF, in my opinion, in the next 12 months for that reason. I think that's nonsense, but that's what's going to happen. And I don't remember your last question. Custody. custody. Okay. So I could talk for an hour on custody, uh, but um, I think custody is the key reason why institutional uh, money is not coming into crypto in mass yet and why it's about to. Um, I used to work at Goldman. I can tell you for a fact they've got a whole bunch of people working on building custody services inside the firewall because they are not going to outsource custody to Coinbase or any other company. It's not going to happen. Some of the smaller companies might. Um, you know, some of the more traditional players might get into it. But that's the key, right? If the buy side at Goldman wants to sell crypto right now, they can't. Where are they going to put it? They have no place to put it legally. So as soon as they address that, which I believe they're doing right now, you will see large amounts of institutional money coming into the crypto space in that 24-month time frame. And I think that's it's, 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 it's one key, pardon the pun, but, but there are others, but it's a big one. And I think I have to stop because I'm being waved, waved off. So I guess we'll see you in a, in a few minutes. Thanks a lot. Interested in raising capital through a security token offering? Start Engine is your full stack solution. Start Engine, a regulated ICO platform with a community of over 155,000 registered users, was founded in 2014 by Howard Marks, co founder of Activision Blizzard. Since the implementation of the Jobs Act, Start Engine has helped over 160 companies raise capital. In fact, Start Engine can help a company build its own tokens and is creating a secondary market upon which those tokens can be traded. In short, Start Engine provides a complete token ecosystem. If your company wants to launch a security token offering, just go to startengine.com unchained for a free consultation and a 20% discount on future regulated ICO setup services. That's startengine.com unchained. This is not legal advice. And now, please welcome Jason Sosa, CEO of the Black Box Foundation, which is working on a new form of capitalism using AI and blockchain. Hello, everyone. So for thousands of years, we have used tools to extend our reach. The Industrial Revolution gave us these mechanical muscles, and now the Information Revolution is giving us mechanical minds. At present, we have a couple of ways in which knowledge workers across the world engage. You can either work for the man, or you can work for yourself. And they both have trade-offs. In a corporate environment, we've seen statistics of 70-80% of people that are disengaged from their work uh, a lot of people are experiencing stress, family problems. They don't want to be stuck in traffic. I had a conversation with over a 1,000 people from Google, Apple, Intel, people across Silicon Valley and around the world because I wanted to understand what, makes, what drives them. Are they happy with what they're doing? And what they told me was that they have children. They have aging parents. And they want to go sit on a beach in Thailand. They don't want to be stuck being a cog in a machine. We've heard these conversations all day today from a number of other speakers. But on the gig economy side, there is another challenge. It's the feast and famine income cycle. It is the wearing of many hats because you have to do it all yourself and you're completely isolated. So all the centralized solutions that we took a look at from Upwork, Fiverr, uh, any other app you can think of, never really address these fundamental economic challenges. So for the last year and a half, I've been working with uh, a group of individuals 
uh, about 60 people from Google, Apple, Intel, from that type of uh, focus, really data scientists, machine learning, and we've been working to solve this challenge in a cooperative way. And so we are a consortium, uh, an interconnected network of individuals, completely independent, choosing to work together. And what we find is that when somebody's great at sales, they usually suck at tech. And when they're great at tech, they usually suck at sales. So how do we balance the skill sets of these individuals so they can really thrive? So why does this matter? Okay, so you have a, a group of individuals, they work alone, they don't want to work for the man, and perhaps 20% utilization of their time. And the rest of the time they're spending doing lead generation, going to conferences, blog posts, and that really doesn't allow them to focus on what they do best. So we really see a, a need to build a new economic model that aligns people's incentives based on intrinsic motivation. So in our model, we don't have managers. We look at managers as a role of, you know, this is what you're supposed to focus on. This is what you're supposed to do. And in our model, we have a self-selection method. You have to believe in yourself. You have to drive your own focus. It's an entrepreneurial mindset. And so we have stewards. And the difference between a manager and a steward is someone who gives a damn. And so we built an economic model around this. And one of the ways we had to solve this is how do you coordinate and manage people across all of these different geographies with different cultures, with different backgrounds, uh, with different skill sets? How do you do that? And it, that was one of the challenges we had to think through, which is building an operating system. I think early on we saw some of these talks where they talked about an operating system or an ecosystem. And one of the benefits of this is interoperability. If you've ever worked in an organization where you have to do accounts payable, accounts receivable, you understand the complexities and challenges of trying to work interoperably with other organizations. So that was one challenge. We didn't necessarily look at this as a, as a technology problem because that's really the free bingo square. The big issue is the messiness of humans and the economics that drive their incentives. So for the last year, we've been working on that. And we've developed something called a proof of value a standardization, a protocol that will allow us on a blockchain to build consensus, to uh, have uh, self-executing smart contracts from people that are working on deliverables across the world, focused on what they do best. So we are in the stage at the moment of breaking this into two kind of pieces. I'll explain how this works. We have a foundation that has this vision, the token, and then we have this other part, which is a proof of business model, which takes these economic theories and puts them into the real world. And we interface with customers and we recognize that customers, they don't care about tokens. They don't care about blockchain. They don't care about AI. They have business challenges. They have a business case and they have no clue what the capabilities are. And they're trying to play connect the dots. And so what we are able to do is interface this traditional world. We call it the world of dead trees, paper contracts, with this other world of smart contracts. So until we have that kind of mechanism or that kind of structure in place, uh, we don't really see that you know, the, the blockchain is going to advance you know, fast enough in our time period to be able to test it. So I'm out of time. Uh, I had a five-minute window here. But if you would like to speak to me afterwards, I'll be right toward the back. And you can check us out at blockboxfoundation.org. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. This is our new panel on Getting Current on Crypto. And joining me on stage will be three panelists. Bill Barhide of Abra, who you heard speak earlier, as well as Galia, Galia Benarzi, co-founder of Bancor, and Mickey Costa, who is the co-founder and CEO of Atlas Holdings. 
All right, so we're going to be discussing what crypto assets are and why many people are interested in their 10x potential. But first, let's have each of you describe what it is that you do in this space, how you got into crypto. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Galia Benartzi, co-founder of Bancor Protocol. Bancor launched a uh, currency, the Bancor Network Token, BNT, uh, in June of 2017. Bancor is a protocol that allows cryptocurrencies to be automatically convertible, one for the other. So it's a mathematical exchange rate between all currencies in the network, which allows uh, for the long tail of currencies to emerge. We'll get more into that. Cool. I'll go. So I'm Mickey Costa. I'm the, the founder of Access Network, and we're a decentralized token economy dedicated to providing uh, better financial services to the unbanked. So um, basically, it's a kind of two-pronged system. You have a, this network of uh, human infrastructure for banking. People in parts of like Africa, for example, today can just with a smartphone become um, ATMs, tellers to the people around them in their community, and they're earning tokens for increased activity there. They're then using those tokens to vote and guide uh, the incentives and rewards for a global app marketplace um, of developers because there's kind of just too much stuff to be done on top of that infrastructure. And they're using the tokens to kind of have access to those applications and get discounts on services. Hi, uh, Bill Barheit. Uh, I think you saw me present Abra a few minutes ago. Abra is a cryptocurrency bank uh, that globally allows consumers to make investments, uh, send money, uh, make payments all using uh, Bitcoin-based smart contracts. Uh, we have customers in about uh, almost 100 countries now. And uh, we're one of the fastest growing uh, apps for uh, doing crypto investing and soon other asset classes, uh, all from a smartphone. So we kind of started this discussion already through the talks, but I still want to hear, obviously, from, from Galia and Mickey. How would you define crypto assets or cryptocurrencies, and also how would you differentiate them from other forms of money that people are already familiar with? Um, I'll, I'll leave a more technical answer for you. I'm always motivated by the kind of result of how this can change the world. So to me, what crypto assets um, are is a way for us to, as global citizens, to coordinate together to solve any kind of problem, financial or otherwise, right? So now you have this ability to um, incentivize any kind of behavior you want. You know, a person with a computer can create um, a trustless environment where people can coordinate to solve a problem. Um, and the other exciting thing for me um, uh, about tokens as opposed to the old financial world is um, is liquidity, right? Um, certain things today in the developed world, like a car or an apartment, are you know, when you can tokenize these things, you can collateralize them more, uh, you can share rights in them, you can share and sell them themselves. And that can be applied also to our work in West Africa, where someone can do the same thing to a goat. And uh, that's just exciting for, I think, all sorts of parties, private and, and public, and even old institutional people that we sometimes rag on, because now you have a, a whole new asset class, um, from digital memes to you know, tokenized apartment buildings that just didn't exist before. So it just allows for completely new things that didn't exist before. I'll add to that, uh, if we go back to what money actually is, uh, money is a tool that we use to collaborate. Like you said, it's a tool that we use to create trust uh, between large networks of people, people you might not know personally. Um, and most importantly, money is a, a belief system. It's an agreement system. 
Um, and so unlike some other inventions like the wheel or things that are, are more physical and, and more defined, uh, the invention of money is actually very open to interpretation in terms of what we believe it to be and what we agree um, on. And so uh, Laura mentioned, maybe you heard her say in the opening, that um, there's this feeling now that you can create money out of thin air. Um, all the money that we use was created in a way out of thin air. Um, and these cryptocurrencies are created uh, in a way out of thin air, and that doesn't make them not valuable uh, because they still represent some kind of agreement uh, between people, and that's what the money is meant to um, virtualize, basically. So our work at Bancor uh, is basically around looking at a multi-currency world. We look at Bitcoin as the first user-generated currency. Um, so that's a, a concept from the internet, from consumer internet. Whenever you reduce the technical barriers to entry and you let folks approach tools uh, like WordPress or YouTube, uh, the internet shows us that you eventually see millions and hundreds of millions of folks approach and use these tools and, and use them to create uh, content. And so Bitcoin and the open source nature of the technology is the first user-generated currency that we've seen. Um, and the team at Bancor believes that where you see one, you'll soon see hundreds of millions um, of these user-generated currencies. Like Bill said, we today have hundreds, thousands probably um, of currencies, uh, and we don't see that slowing down. The real question with all of these currencies and, and with any currency, what makes a currency money um, is that we agree that it's money, is that someone else will accept it uh, from you in exchange uh, for something. Um, to date, we have uh, outsourced this ability to governments or empowered our governments to create these monies for us. Um, the, the monies of countries are accepted. They're recognized by people at some exchange rate or another. Uh, but in a world with hundreds of millions uh, of currencies, what will make any one of them potentially valuable uh, is only their liquidity to other currencies. It's only their fungibility, as you said, to either another currency that you want or a good and service that you want. So to answer your question, um, anything is money as long as we agree to it. So I think that what Bitcoin did is, and digital currencies have been around for decades, it's just that what Bitcoin did is it changed the narrative, right? Uh, up until now, the, the, the slogan for money has been, in God we trust, and ultimately let the people uh, in that secret room at the, for the, the Fed Board of Governors make the decisions. Now the mantra is trust no one, verify via the code, and play your role in the incentive-based ecosystem. Now, that's enabled via this cool technology that solved the double spend problem, you know, using every, it's very inefficient, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of solving that problem, it's, it's, it's huge and it's a fundamental shift in the way we should think about, think about money. And Galia, I actually wanted you to talk about Bancor's experience with Hearts because I think that's like a really concrete example that people can wrap their minds around. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
Yeah, sure. So um, the team behind Bancor previously experimented with what we call user-generated currencies or community currencies. Um, community currencies you can think of like monopoly money, uh, which you drop into a group of people. Um, and what we discovered, shocking, is that when you give people money, uh, they use it. And we ran pilots all over the world with tens of thousands of users in each group. Um, the one Laura's talking about was called Hearts, and it was a currency issued for mothers. Uh, so mothers could join this group. They would get hearts when they joined. There were all these things they could do to get more hearts, like volunteer at the school, babysit for other um, parents in the neighborhood, all, all kinds of things that were relevant to that community. Um, and then they could spend the hearts with each other. So all the mothers would upload into the mobile app things they wanted to sell, clothes, bikes, toys, services, consultations, um, really over 50,000 items we saw at, at any given time. Um, and it was a fascinating experiment because in just under a year, we saw over $20 million worth of commerce take place among 20,000 people uh, only using hearts. So no dollars, uh, no fiat currencies exchange hands. How do we calculate it? Just one heart was worth $1. That's what we told uh, folks. It wasn't worth that, meaning you couldn't cash it out, but for pricing, for ease of pricing. A heart is a dollar. If you're going to sell a cake uh, for 20 bucks, you could sell it for 20 hearts um, in this network. And what we realized was that when you look at a number like GDP for that year that we ran this experiment, you know, GDP could be uh, $20 billion in a, in a small country. And, and in this country, it was actually $20 billion plus 20 million um, that no one was counting because that was economic collaboration that was happening between folks um, in a currency that, that wasn't being measured. Um, things got really interesting after that year when we started seeing usage uh, plateau and then decline. Um, and what we understood in pilot after pilot with uh, mothers, with children, with vegans, I mean really a, a diverse um, set of use cases in a diverse set of countries was that liquidity ultimately was the breaking point of these currencies. What does that mean? If you couldn't use the hearts to shop at the supermarket, or if you couldn't use the hearts when you went out of your community or on a vacation to a different place, the meaning of that money uh, collapsed in your mind, right? It's like you can use Monopoly money in a game, but you can't use it anywhere else, so we don't think of it as money. Um, and that's actually how we backed into the solution we work on at Bancor, which is how could you allow all of these currencies, potentially hundreds of millions of currencies like hearts and stars and, and, and things for communities all over the world, how could you allow folks to get the abundance that they were getting out of local commerce and yet still have these currencies be globally relevant, globally tradable? Um, and that's when we moved to essentially a mathematical-based solution, which, as Bill said, programmable money um, is the key here. You can now solve problems uh, that the economists of, of old uh, knew were problems but didn't know the solutions to. Um, and now with very simple algorithms, with very simple computer code, you could tell a heart how much it's worth in dollars at any given time based on a really simple formula that says, you know, if more people are using hearts, the value is climbing up. And if people are not using hearts, if they're selling out of them, the value is climbing down. Um, and you could make those formulas take in any kind of factor that you think is relevant or that folks in your community think is relevant. Um, and that's what we call the long tail, is really um, a world with hundreds of millions of currencies like hearts 
that are relevant to communities, whether they're geographic, whether they're local, whether they're affinity-based groups, you know, folks um, online and, and in different networks, whether they're corporate currencies. Um, and truly this idea of making money out of thin air is more like making agreements um, online or in code uh, between different networks of people. Something that's come up a lot, which I also talked about in my speech, was decentralization. And we've been talking about you know, these like user-generated currencies or user-incentivized systems. And um, you, know, you talked about just providing the tools and then people can create their own. But how do we get there? Because a lot of these start off somewhat centralized, right? There's like an identifiable group of people that are creating this project. So how do you get from kind of the original version, which is somewhat centralized, to an actual decentralized uh, crypto network? Yeah, I'll give you my take. Uh, I, I think what Mickey's doing is really interesting in creating the on-ramps and off-ramps, too. Uh, I think it's going to happen in three stages. I, I think that the... So first of all, we look at kind of the, the, the Bitcoin world as... Uh, the, my favorite analogy is the Matrix, right? When you're, you've seen the movie, when you're inside the Matrix, in theory, you don't know about the outside world, except for the people that have hacked in, and they use these hard lines to kind of hack into the Matrix. And that's how we use exchanges now. Exchanges represent kind of the hard line back into the banking system to get money in and out. So phase one... Is, is, is that, that Austrian uh, playbook that I mentioned before, which is massive speculation, which is what should happen when you have a deflationary asset that's been created out of nothing, right? And it's playing out that rule book. And so phase two says, okay, if the deflationary asset via stops and starts, especially because governments don't like it, eventually gets up and to the right from a price perspective, the purse strings will be loosened because people are going to have massive amounts of wealth they want to take advantage of. And people will offer lots of payment services because... You know, people are going to be incentivized to, to, to use uh, their, uh, their crypto to make payments. Um, and then the third is what I talked about earlier, where you see true programmable money in the form of smart contracts and other things, enable things like micropayments, uh, micro decentralized investing networks, hardware as a service, myriad applications that can't be done easily without, or at all without cryptocurrency, but require the first two steps. Right? The, the press doesn't understand when they write about the lack of usage of Bitcoin that you simply can't bypass the first two steps in creating a decentralized system. And it has to play itself out in order to get there. Right? And 20 years is not a long time frame. I had reunion last year with folks from Netscape. We couldn't believe <laughs> that it's been 25 years, but it has. Right? And, and so this time, is, it's, it's, it's not that long when you think about how many currencies have failed over the last 250 years to put the right pieces and tollways in place to make all this work in a decentralized model? Uh, I think the, the value of decentralization on the long run timeline is kind of everything. Um, so on a technical level, you need to have more um, on-chain governance. You know, how do we coordinate and make decisions together? But what interests me more and I think will lead to adoption more is, is really more of a philosophical economic point, right? You know, if all things are equal, in a centralized legacy system, let's say like a Facebook, right? Um, and the service, the network effect is the same. The value of Facebook and Facebook, decentralized Facebook is the same. The only difference is decentralized Facebook pays you automatically, you know, $10 a month or $50 a year based upon your data and the things that are being monetized. I, you know, we would think that economically you would go and join the decentralized Facebook. So the thing that matters the most, you know, I think that thesis is easy to get on board with. The thing that matters the most to me is people talk about a long time, a long timeline all the time. You know, what's going to happen first? And I'm a big believer that if you look at the developing world, you'll see the value of a decentralized company or service have you know, more adoption first because 
it's really hard to match the value of Facebook today or Uber in the US. They do a pretty good job, right? So when you go to the developing world, and I'll use, we're talking a lot about, thankfully today, solar and energy. So let's go to the developing world and blanketly across the place like Africa. Um, some people don't have energy, or if they do, they're spending about $10 a month on it, right? And that's could be 10, 5% of your monthly income, that's a lot. So now with, with solar, it, you know, it, it completely works. So if you can have mechanisms to fund solar energy grids, a local community can pay, continue to pay to use something, maybe $5 a month. Now they have reliable energy. I think it's great that it's green, but maybe they don't care. Um, it's way cheaper, right? So now they're beating the legacy value of uh, the $10 a month government-run legacy system that often goes out for like hours a day, by the way, right? And, but what's the result now compared back to me at home where I have reliable and at a pro rata level pretty cheap electricity with Con Edison in New, in New York City? I'm not the co-owner of this network. Right. So now you have these local networks where you have, you're solving a real problem and people are co-owners and profiters as users of something that they use. And I'll just end on this note at a high level because that model could be applied to pretty much uh, anything else at an infrastructure, you know, real world level. Um, it's a lot cheaper using back of the envelope math to build a hyperloop somewhere than to rebuild the New York City subway system. So I think places where they have real pain points and they don't have a legacy system as a kind of a blank canvas to build things, you'll see using crypto economics um, and decentralized models, a lot of this idea of users co-owning things that they use. And you have a mix of this kind of free market libertarian ideals that have this kind of more utilitarian outcome. By the way, just one comment on that. So uh, if you look at the early writings from... I say this like the religion, but I didn't mean it that way. Like the, when Satoshi was first releasing Bitcoin, he actually talked about, or she talked about, whether Bitcoin was being released then to it as a result of the financial crisis that was happening at the time. Uh, and, and they said, no, we're actually trying to prepare for the one that's coming next in 10 or 15 years because, like clockwork, it is coming, right? And so let's get ready for that by laying the, the rails and the groundwork to be prepared for that now. That's interesting. So, Kali, I want you to answer this question in particular because of what happened with Bancor recently where your, uh, I guess they call it the escape patch key, was was exposed. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know you, you guys have probably thought a lot about this centralization versus decentralization pain point. Sure. So I'll add that um, we think decentralization is a journey and not a destination. Um, what do we mean by that? If you you know go to the essential nature of what it is we're trying to do, and different people have different definition of this, but we're trying to create systems that are more inclusive, that are more fair, that are more accessible, um, and that hopefully make living together as uh, humans on this planet uh, a, a nicer experience, a better experience. Um, and decentralization is a legitimate uh, cause, right? Because when we see centralization, when we see governments, when we see central banks, when we see, you know, over time, if we go into back in history, kings and empires and, and all of the formats that, that we've taken around governance, um, centers tend to abuse the power, right? That's the problem. If the centers were not abusing power, we might not be on this march uh, for decentralization. And so the question becomes not 
must we decentralize, but how do we prevent centers from abusing power? Decentralizing is certainly one of the tools that we have in the toolbox. Um, but now, thanks to programmability, we also have other tools, um, like uh, open source, like transparency. If you could see every single dollar that was printed by the Fed and where it went in that moment, um, there'd be much less abuse, probably, by you know, bodies like the Fed. They might still do, do some bad things, but they would have to account um, for a lot of the things that they do do, right? It's, it's the, the call for transparency. Um, and so to Laura's question, recently at Bancor, we used a what you would call a centralized uh, control within our smart contracts, which allowed us in this situation to uh, retrieve over $10 million of stolen uh, tokens from the network. Uh, there was a security breach, there was a hack of the system, and millions of dollars of cryptocurrency were stolen. Our uh, central control was used to return the part of that currency that we had control over. Um, and so this, this conversation ensued about decentralization versus centralization. Um, and we came out with a few additional uh, points that we think are really important when looking at decentralization as a concept. One is, like I say, uh, open source and transparency. Can you see when an emergency control is being used? Do you know who has the ability to use it? Are there clear um, statements around who can use it, when they will use it, how that will be announced? Okay, so the, the transparency of the network is a big uh, factor, whether it's decentralized or centralized. Um, the second one is forkability. If the code of a network is easily forkable, um, because it's open source uh, and because all the data is owned by the users, um, then again, you, in, you extremely prevent abuse. If Bancor knows that when we abuse our controls, folks can make their own Bancor, take all the code and leave, that's going to make us highly unlikely to abuse our own system uh, because the next thing that will happen is it will collapse. Um, and the third thing is really the uh, custody of the users. Um, do users in the network, like in a decentralized Facebook example or in the Bancor network, do users maintain control of their own assets and their own passwords and their own private keys at all times? Uh, with Bancor, the answer is yes. Even during a security breach, uh, when the whole network was down, any user could access their own wallet, could access their own tokens, could take them all, could move them somewhere else um, at any moment, um, even while our network was down. Um, and so, again, whether the um, central control that we had to uh, activate in an emergency situation makes the network not decentralized is something that we would say, look at, look at these other parameters. Um, if users always have access to their own assets, um, we think that is a huge step towards decentralization. Um, the last thing I'll say is that we think it takes some trust to get to trustless. Right? So you're talking about the crisis that will come in 15 years. Um, will we have products and services? Will we have teams uh, working in the space that are able to provide progress um, in this time frame? Or will we keep waiting for the perfect solution um, to materialize perfectly in a technology environment that is incredibly unknown? Um, and so again, some of the tools that we offer to the community as kind of um, pathways, right? And the thing about progress is it's progressive um, and it goes step by step often, um, are things like on-ramps. So uh, we, as an example, uh, gave our smart contract three years uh, before it moves to its uh, upgradable and immutable state. 
Um, we, we told the community we think it'll take about three years to monitor the early behavior of the network to make sure that the code is written appropriately to test some of the edge cases that are impossible to test uh, until you go live. Um, and this three-year on-ramp um, to immutability is what we think is safe uh, for everyone. And the first three years of this network will, will be the most um, accountable and responsible for the network safety. We use the analogy sometimes of an infant. Um, an infant will become a fully self-sustaining human eventually that can feed themselves and live on their own without their parents. Not on day one and not on year one. There's a certain amount of care that it takes for that infant to become even potentially self-sustaining. Um, and we think networks, especially technology networks, um, written on very new underlying blockchains like Ethereum or EOS or whatever you're building on, written in smart contracts, which are a new type of programming paradigm uh, where you're deploying immutable code uh, to a blockchain. Um, we think that these on-ramps are another tool that the community has um, in our toolbox to getting where we want, which is more decentralized systems, not decentralize or die. So we're running out of time, but I want to ask one last question. Here we've been through this like major speculative phase. Um, we're obviously coming down from that. Um, but when I look at some of the usage statistics, even on the more popular projects like CryptoKitties or Augur, which just launched to kind of a lot of fanfare, they've all got, you know, like 50 or less users per 24-hour periods. And I mean, it's just there's just very little usage of these things. So how do we go from speculation to adoption? I think we need more real-world use cases. To, to Bill's point earlier, um, the best technology, you don't know how it works. I, I, when I get into my car, it works. When I watch Netflix, it works. And I think what's taking us some time is what's a natural human behavior is, while it's a global movement, a lot of technologists are looking in their own backyard. You know, how can my life be better? And to what I said earlier, I think that, that just is really hard to compete with legacy systems. I think if we look to places like the developing world where they have pain points longer than I can list in any amount of time, um, you're going to see those real-world uses happen. I think what's really important is as we have a real-world user base that's using crypto technology under the hood to solve myriad problems, how is it including the rest of the world and developed world users? Right? So back to that solar analogy, can we fund those things? And in, I'm not kidding with this napkin math. In two months, can we get a 2x investment? I'm outside before this conference today, and there's an ad on like the garbage disposal for the paper or something and for a bank. And it goes, lock in your money for 2% CD. And inflation's about 2% in America. So I think also a lot of the average people here were lacking, and I think it'll happen around financial stuff first, were lacking access to wealth investments. And people over here are a great place individually and communally to invest our money, and we just don't have an easy-to-use application for us to, to connect to each other financially. Look, I mean, in 1993, you had to install a TCP IP stack on a Windows PC to access the Internet, right? Most, I'm sure anybody here under the age of 30 doesn't understand what I just said. So, which is fine. You shouldn't have to. And look where we are 25 years later. My prediction is, is that Bitcoin or its successor will become the payment and settle rail for, for what become banking transactions of the future, hopefully via something like Lightning on top. And the average person in this room, or anywhere, maybe less so in this room because the savvy people, but the average person will not know that, that it's using Bitcoin or its successor. They simply won't. It'll be using the you know, fancy-schmancy multi-sig smart contract stuff that I 
rambled on about before. How but the bottom line is, just, but go ahead. I'm just curious, how long do you think it will take to get to the point where people will use these technologies in that way, but not know that they're doing so? Ten years. Oh wow. Yeah, because it was a lot of liquidity rails that have to be laid first. We need more hard lines into the matrix in, in developing markets uh, to make it, you know, really accessible. Uh, but the, the large-scale applications, which may be collectibles, they may be you know, new tokens on Ethereum, they may be just Bitcoin, that are, take advantage of those rails, I think are, are five to ten years out. Wow. Yeah, I think on the, on the shorter end of, of that spectrum, five years, we're already seeing um, at Bancor, uh, we launched a project in Kenya where paper currencies that folks are using in rural villages, they don't have access to the national money. One of the biggest problems with money is that not everyone has it. That's, that's the problem. Um, and the killer app f- for blockchain is money. Lots of money. All kinds of money. Um, money that people can actually get in their communities and that they can actually use uh, to buy and sell goods and services right where they are. It's not financialization. It's commerce. Um, it's trade. It's living life with the people around you. Um, We've already seen this literally this week in Kenya. The first tomatoes were traded on the blockchain. um, And uh, folks in a town were given cryptocurrency, put it on their smartphone. It's true the apps are still you know, a bit clunky, a bit advanced, but that's changing um, quickly because we have the underlying infrastructure, the internet, the smartphones, um, and the the things that came before. Um, And they're using the currencies at the market so that they can trade amongst themselves. It's already happening. The moment the village next door gets wind that this village just made their own money, and now everyone's using it and buying and selling from each other, we think it's going to catch like wildfire. Great. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. So our next panel is going to be about blockchain for good. And I'd like to welcome to the stage Anne Connolly, who's blockchain faculty here at Singularity University and also chair, vice chair of the board of Blockchain Canada. And Kara LaPointe, who's senior fellow at the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. Let's start with Anne. Why don't you tell us your background and how you got into crypto? Absolutely. So I've always had a passion for impact and trying to change the world, as cheesy as that might be. Um, In my younger days, I did that through international NGOs. So I actually worked with Doctors Without Borders in Central African Republic and in DR Congo. And um, the place that I was working was one of the most remote places I will ever be in my entire life. There was no internet, no electricity, no water. And um, so we had a staff of about 200 people working for us. And when we had to pay them at the end of the month, of course, they're unbanked, and we had to pay them in cash. So if you think about how you get the money to pay 200 people, the cash, from the capital city to one of the most remote places on earth, It's an interesting challenge. So I actually used to carry knapsacks full of cash on my back through military checkpoints, through guerrilla-run territory, and then we'd store it in our office. And so I've had many colleagues who have been robbed, they've been kidnapped, they've been injured as a result of, of doing this work. And so for me, when I heard about Bitcoin in 2012, the aha moment I had was thinking, okay, if we could just pay all of our staff with the click of a mouse from Europe 
all of this work that we were doing to count the cash and, and put it out um, would be so much more efficient. But fundamentally, it wasn't about efficiency. It was about the lives of the people that I was working with who would be saved by not carrying cash in uh, highly insecure countries. And, and actually, just to continue, so then how did you end up working in this space and what do you do now? Yeah, so I, um, I focus very much on projects at the intersection of blockchain and social impact. So I teach with Singularity University. And then um, I'm advising a really exciting company out of Toronto called Buns. That's the online trading and bartering platform. They've been able to keep more than uh, two, it's the equivalent of two blue whales of trash out of the garbage by using cryptocurrency to facilitate trades between people in their community. So working in that space and working with a couple of uh, NGOs as well. Oh, very cool. Okay, Kara. Great. So I came to the blockchain world through the lens of ethics and technology. So my technical background is actually in autonomous systems. I spent over two decades in the U.S. Navy, and I was working on autonomous systems, military autonomous systems. So you can imagine there are some ethical uh, debates around that. So I got heavily involved in some of those discussions. And so that's what brought me to Georgetown University about a year and a half ago, where they asked me to come over and start to look at some, of, some similar issues around blockchain and how it was being deployed in terms of social impact to look at the privacy and ethical implications of that. So that has resulted in, we actually launched earlier this summer, something called a blockchain ethical design framework. So it really is a, a methodology and a tool that people can use to have a thoughtful and ethical design process when they're developing blockchain technologies for social impact. So we've been talking about um, you know, blockchain kind of more in terms of like the investment aspect, the speculative aspect. But everybody also talks about how blockchain technology can be used for social good. What are some of the more promising applications in that regard? I think Alex really nailed it yesterday when he talked about how it's really about freedom. It's about freedom of choice, freedom of expression, freedom of you know, financial system. Um, because when you think about all these countries that you know, Bill was talking about as well, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, if you make money on Monday and it doesn't buy you anything on Friday... There's a word for that, and it's slavery, right? It's really fundamentally, if you don't have the option to take the money that you earn and put it in something that will actually store its value, you're not a worker, you are a slave. And so when you see this opportunity for people to choose the financial system that they want, whether it is their national currency or whether it's Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency, that really is freedom. Um, and so I think, uh, first and foremost, that's where I see the absolute benefit. Um, but then beyond when you look at decentralization and a lot of the other examples out there, uh, the, the options for social good just expand into virtually every single industry that we see in the world. I think it goes beyond just the financial applications, right? Blockchain, first of all, let's level set that blockchain is not one thing, right? There's a lot of different ways to create blockchain technologies, and they have very different impacts on people's lives. But the other kinds of things that people are using blockchain for, to create digital identity systems, to do asset tracking, now that those assets could be mobile votes, mobile voting systems. Those assets could be if you donate to a charity and being able to actually track where your dollars are going through the charity. Looking at organic produce, you know, when you go to the grocery store, you see the organic apples and the other apples. How do you really know that those are organic? Well, if there was a, a provenance tracking system through a blockchain, you'd be a lot more sure of where it was coming from. So there's a whole range of different applications of blockchain in the social impact space. Yeah, I don't know if any of you lived in New York, but maybe about 10 years ago or so, after I'd moved away, I realized that, or there was a news article saying that 
this one grocer called Healthy Pleasures had been labeling non-organic produce as organic. And I did like all my grocery shopping there when I lived in New York and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Um, but anyway, so I actually want to go back to identity. Um, what are some of the problems with identity that need to be solved and how can blockchain technology solve them? Yeah, so identity, I think, is a really interesting application of blockchain. You know, there's over a billion people in the world that don't have any kind of formal identity. Think about that. Think about any time you try to access any service in your life, whether it's healthcare, financial services, trying to cross a border, what is the first thing somebody asks you for? Your identity, right? So if you can use blockchain to start to create secure digital identities, that is really powerful. I mean, think about even... even Closer to home, homeless populations. People are looking at how can you create a digital identity system for homeless populations so that you know, when they don't actually can't keep track of, a, uh, of some kind of paper identification, they can show up somewhere and have their biometrics linked to an identity system, and then that can better access services for them. There's an interesting angle, too, around the privacy of identity. So if you think about the last time you went out to a bar... Um, not counting last night, which was a lot of fun. Um, and the bouncer says, okay, I need to see your ID so you can get in. And you hand over your ID, or maybe your daughter does, whatever it is, and the only information they really need to know is that you're over 18 or over 21. But when you hand them your driver's license, they know your name, they know your birthday, they know your address, they have significant amounts of information that could help them actually steal your identity and maybe take out a credit card, a credit card or in a worst-case scenario, they could actually follow you home at the end of the night. So if you think about blockchain-based ID where you could put your fingerprint in your phone and it would just turn green and say, yep, she's over 21. You don't need to know her birthday, you don't need to know her name, but you can let her in your bar. It's verified. Yeah, I actually also wanted to mention something that came up in one of my podcasts. I interviewed Catherine Hahn, who is a former federal prosecutor, and that's uh, what her job was at the time. Now she's uh, one of the GPs at Andreessen Horowitz and manages their or co-manages their crypto fund. Um, but she talked to my podcast about how apparently in the U.S. there's 14,000 legitimate versions of birth certificates out there, literally. And so um, she was saying that this leads to what's called breeder documents, uh, where um, basically with you know some kind of faked birth certificate, which would be really difficult for anybody to figure out you know was fake, you can create then like a passport and a driver's license and all these really useful identities that you can use you know to do all kinds of things. Um, so I think that's definitely another area uh, you know kind of combating fraud. Um, but let's kind of also talk about the provenance issue that you mentioned earlier, I feel like there's so many areas where that can be applied. What are some examples and what are the problems that that can solve there? Yeah, I mean, there are myriad examples. We talked a little bit about, a bit about secure mobile voting, but think about the government applications also in terms of, of deeds and land registry, right? There's a lot of countries around the world that are exploring. If they could put land registries on a blockchain, then you know, think about how much you pay for title insurance when you buy a house. Right? But you know, there's, there's always some challenges with this. Right? There's what we call the zero state problem. How does everybody decide that the initial information that goes into the blockchain is a ground truth to start with? Right? But there, there are other things. Like think about after a disaster, trying to keep track of all of the resources and all of the needs and all of the resources that go into a disaster zone. You know, that's, a, that's an area where you, know, you have a lot of different people who have to access the system, have to write to the system, have to see the system. You know, these are the areas that people are exploring for blockchain to see how you can track things, especially in these very decentralized environments. 
It's also coming to play. There's a few companies looking at provenance in terms of elimination of slavery in the fishing trade. So you could track your fish back to a company that you know does you know proper fishing. Um, there's other ones that are looking at diamond tracing so that you can be sure the diamond you purchased was not a blood diamond. So when you really think about it, I mean, yes, it's a supply chain problem, but at the end of the day, the real problem it is solving are, are very critical issues around human rights and climate change and, and these sorts of things. Yeah, climate change is actually where I wanted to go next. Um, so I am curious to know, like, how do you think it can be applied in that regard to try to solve this massive problem we're facing? One of the biggest ways, I think, first and foremost, is in the carbon trading market. Um, I had met with someone who worked in that industry, and, and she basically said that when you're trading carbon credits, there's actually a, one individual in Scotland who sits there with an Excel spreadsheet and says, oh, okay, these people want to trade with these people, and then puts it in there, which is ridiculous. So if you can start to put these tokens on publicly tradable markets so you're not dependent on one centralized body to actually be moving them around, you can have some massive impacts there. I think another way is in, in microgrids for solar. There have been some really interesting examples here in the U.S. and Brooklyn and other places where people put solar panels and they actually created local trading markets themselves through a blockchain. But also internationally, I think uh, we've looked at a couple examples throughout the conference of you, know, you can have solar and people can pay as you go. There's a new company, BitLumens, who's working on this and another, a number of other companies where you can put solar places where people can't afford that capital investment, but then they pay incrementally to actually use that equipment. I had actually was talking with someone uh, yesterday about the concept of sticking solar cells in the middle of nowhere in these deserts and the Sahara and that kind of thing and hooking them up to Bitcoin mining rigs. Um, so the energy consumption issue is not so much of a problem and you don't need to move the energy because uh, they're just running the rigs right there. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, so... Obviously, you know, we've been talking really pie in the sky. It sounds like, oh, blockchain technology is going to solve all these things. But kind of as I alluded to earlier in my speech, you know, people often have really well-intentioned plans. They don't always come off that way. So what do you think are kind of the potential pitfalls or how do you think uh, some of these plans could go awry? Well, technology is a tool, right? And it's never a panacea. And Technology can do incredible things, but there's always a flip side, right? When you develop technology for a purpose, there's often unintended consequences of that technology. There's also people out there who are eager to subvert that technology for their own uses, right? So the more thoughtful you can be about some of these things at the beginning in your design process is better. But think about digital identity systems. You're putting people's potentially personal information into a system that is distributed, transparent, immutable, Think back to that example I said about um, in terms of homeless populations, creating digital identity. Well, I'm a veteran. I was in the military for a long time. Let's say you had a homeless veteran and somebody accidentally put into the system that they were dishonorably discharged from the military. That means they would be cut out from all of their military benefits if that was the system that was used to connect them to benefits, right? So, you know, mistakes happen. People are human. So you have to think through these things at the beginning. You know, how do you start to create systems where you can make corrections in a system? And, you know, you understand with blockchain, you can never erase a transaction. You can create another transaction that reverses that original transaction. But that information will always be there, and it can be potentially very damaging to folks depending on how it's entered in. I think one of the issues I also see in the blockchain space is people have such good intentions and they're so excited about the technology that they're trying to apply it anywhere they can. 
and they either don't have the knowledge of the underlying problem or the blockchain solution that they apply, which technically is, is feasible, doesn't actually solve the problem that needs to be solved. So I see this a lot in the case of um, projects working in the African continent in developing countries. There was one project that was specifically um, related to banking unbanked African women using this particular token. Um, and when I asked them how these unbanked African women would get the token, they said, oh, well, they can buy it with Bitcoin. So how are they going to get Bitcoin? There's two ATMs on the continent at the time, you know. And so they hadn't really thought through the realities of the actual problem space uh, and were just trying to apply blockchain to it without really a whole lot of thought. So I know you've been working on this, like, ethical framework for blockchain. Um, what are some tips that you would have for people that want to use blockchain technology and apply it in these different ways to have a positive social impact? Well, I think the first thing is make sure you understand the problem that you're trying to solve and understand the entire ecosystem around that problem and the outcome you're trying to achieve. And bring in a really diverse set of voices and stakeholders as you're thinking through this. Because you know, you, if you are surrounded by people who have the same paradigm as you do, you're going to approach this problem in one way. But as Anna was alluding to, if you don't think through what is the infrastructure that this system is going in, what's the technology infrastructure, what's the regulatory and legal infrastructure, but then who are the users? What are the user dynamics? And you may go into a place and say, okay, I'm going to use a blockchain to help distribute aid, and the unit I'm going to distribute aid to is going to be the family unit. Okay, so there's an adult and there's children. Well, there's places in the world where family units are not led by an adult. So if that's the way you design your system, that's not going to work, right? And it really comes down to governance. Blockchain is a system where you set up, you create a set of rules, and all the transactions have to follow those rules. So there is a lot of power in creating those rules about who has access, who controls and owns data and transactions and assets. So being very diverse from the very beginning and really understanding the ecosystem of the problem that you're trying to solve, I think is the good first step. Yeah, I would also say, uh, don't forget history, because I've seen a lot of projects out there that, again, are very well-intentioned, but are repeating a lot of the mistakes of the past. There's one in Puerto Rico right now where they're trying to create a decentralized community, um, and they're effectively recolonizing Puerto Rico. Uh, and so it's it's you have to be very careful about not just having good intentions, but actually having good operations and a good strategy behind what you're doing to actually achieve the outcomes you want to achieve. So we actually have a few minutes left for questions. Are there any questions in the audience? Hi. Hi, Anne, as well. Um, so I'm curious, because you've been at the interface of this technology and now working with some of the traditional development organizations. What's your observation on their willingness to be to use this technology for transformation? So it's been a slow road. I, I launched one of uh, the world's first Bitcoin donation programs in 2014. I had tried to do it in 2013, uh, and that was a slow process. And even still working with NGOs today, there's a huge education gap. They're typically less innovative than the traditional world, much less innovative than the folks in the audience now. And so you really have to go slow, start with education, start with the smallest pilot project you possibly can, because otherwise, you know, for them, the looking at innovative or not guaranteed outcomes and with new projects. So if you've got something, you're like, okay, we're going to try this new blockchain thing. It might fail. It, it might succeed. 
To them, they say, okay, well, if we try this and it fails, there's lives at stake or there's outcomes we're not going to hit. And so we'd rather stick with this one that's, you know, 100% guaranteed to give you 80% results versus this one that would be much better but is more likely to fail. And so my, my real strategy around it is looking at what is the easiest entry point that we can get them into, which typically for a lot of organizations, from my perspective, is charity fundraising get them accustomed to how the money moves, how the crypto moves, um, how they can exchange it, get them to use it, and then start to talk about some of the greater benefits around decentralization and how they can use blockchain um, in a more uh, infrastructure-style implementation. Hi, this is uh, Jeff DeRose uh, from Deloitte. I wanted to get your opinion on the application near-term for blockchain to support micro-lending. Micro-lending? Micro-lending, is that what you asked? Yeah, you know, so financial inclusion is one of the amazing potentials of blockchain. Um, And so I think a lot of people are working in that space and developing proof of concepts right now. Um, And so that's one of the things we hear a lot about. Now, once again, how you set up that system is really important and understanding the ecosystem that you're walking into, and it's very contextual um, in terms of the different societies. But I think it's a really powerful application of blockchain. I think also there's um, a lot of appetite for, instead of micro-lending, just cash transfers. So Brian Armstrong of Coinbase uh, launched um, an organization called Give Crypto about two, three weeks ago. Um, And essentially the whole concept is trying to build a crypto endowment fund that will then send cash transfers uh, around the world. And I know uh, WFP, the World Food Program, also has a really successful pilot that they've done using cash transfers where typically when you see famine in places, it's not that there's a lack of food. It's actually that there's a lack of money to buy food. And so they, um, in the past, had been giving people food, subsequently flooding the market with a whole bunch of food that wasn't required. And so that would create more cycles of, of poverty and famine. And so what they've done is move to a system of cash transfers, but when you're actually giving money to people... Uh, the infrastructure to do that is difficult and you don't really know what they're spending the money on. So they've moved to a crypto token model where they can give them these tokens that can be spent at local grocery stores and local shops and then they'll only do the effects transfer with the grocery stores, meaning that instead of having to do cash transfers with, say, 100,000 people, they only have to do it for, with 400 stores. And so they've, they've done this in, um, in Pakistan as well as in Jordan with a number of Syrian refugees and they are poised to save like many million do- millions of dollars. I can't remember exactly how many, Um, but it's been a very successful program and um, a great example of a simple implementation that just has efficiency gains uh, that will then free up more money to actually go to the people who need it. There's another interesting associated application in terms of aggregation of microassets. I mean, there's a lot of places in the world where people don't have enough assets to actually be interesting to the formal financial markets, but using blockchain-based systems, you can start to aggregate those assets, and then they can enter into a more formal system. Yeah, and if you're interested in learning more about that UN World Food Program pilot, um, I had the head of that organization of that uh, program on my podcast, Unconfirmed. His name is Robert Opp, and he spoke about it. And he did, I think, mention dollar figure in terms of savings. But I also don't remember it. Um, this was back in May. Karen and I met him actually at the same conference. Um, but yeah, he talked about how it was hugely successful. And I think he hinted that basically the UN is interested in maybe adopting it in other areas because it actually has been really, really useful. Um, and oh, there's one back there. Yeah, uh, great to see an all-female panel um, at this point in the conference. And I, you guys gave some great examples of the social impact layer of projects in the developing world: uh, energy, identity, food. 
Um, having already done all lots of research, can you just throw some more examples out? Because I'm really curious. And I think one of my favorite companies that's out there is one out of Vancouver, Canada, called RightMesh. And they're essentially mixing blockchain and mesh networks. So if you can imagine you've got um, a developing country or somewhere that doesn't have internet access, if you have one person that has internet access, perhaps through their phone or through their home, they can then um, connect to everybody else in the town. And so using blockchain, anyone who's processing sort of that transfer of information back to the internet will get paid a little bit, a little microtransaction in cryptocurrency. And then everyone in the town has access to the internet, even though only one person actually has that connection. So that's a really exciting project that fundamentally is going to open up access to information and access to this freedom of crypto and that type of thing for populations all around the world. So having a largely ocean background, one of the ones that's really exciting to me is not just looking at the seafood industry from the slavery perspective, but also in terms of illegal fishing and how you can start to use a suite of technologies where blockchain is one, but also using visual image processing and AI and other technologies and, and satellite technology to really be able to track where catch and how much catch is being taken, especially you know across the Pacific Ocean and other places, and to record that automatically into a blockchain system. I think that's a really powerful application. Uh, great examples. Right Mesh is awesome. They, they raise money there. They've got a great team. Um, what about carbon sinks and projects where, I guess, contributing to climate change, where there's perhaps corrupt government, and how do we empower people to save their forests, their jungles? Um, have you come across anything around that? There's a number of different companies working on the climate change angle. Where it gets really interesting is when you start to integrate blockchain with sensors. So if you said perhaps, okay, we want to reforest this whole area, um, we'll use NASA satellite data to identify whether or not that impact has been achieved, and then that will trigger the payment through blockchain. Now, naysayers will say the only thing that's going to do is going to create a price uptick in green paint, so they'll paint the ground instead of planting the trees, but... You know, there's, there's one of the possible outcomes. But there's some really neat things that you can do as well with adding sensors to farmland to make sure that it's being farmed in a sustainable way. Um, essentially looking at how can you actually take data from unique sources and then use that to trigger payments or to trigger tokenization of data that can then be sold and traded. Great. Well, these have been fantastic questions. Thank you guys for your wonderful answers. We are out of time, but this has been really fabulous. Thank you. Thank you.